We'll see if we can make some tracks this morning in the few minutes we have before us. Luke 15, I'll meet you there shortly. Once you find Luke, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Luke 15, familiar passage uh, to us, and we'll just take a few minutes to look at that. Heavenly Father, we ask now that uh, you would be our teacher. Uh, Help us to guard these moments that are before us, uh, to put aside the, the classes that have passed and those that are before us and uh, allow us to look into your word. We'd ask, Lord, that we'd be sensitive to the moving of your Holy Spirit. And we would ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. I don't know if you listen to much news or not, but there was a traffic officer that pulled an elderly lady over. And uh, she was driving her little old car too slow down the freeway. Uh, and he said to her, ma'am, this is a 70 mile per hour zone. Why are you only doing 20 miles an hour? You're really endangering all the other vehicles that are, are coming up and trying to pass you. Well, the old lady looked at the officer. I'm so sorry. I, I saw a whole lot of signs that said 20, but not a lot that said 70. And the officer kind of caught on. He said, ma'am, no, what you're seeing is the actual name of the highway, those signs that are along the way. Well, just then he noticed two old ladies that were sitting in the back and they had their arms wrapped around one another and their hair was standing on end and their teeth were chattering and he couldn't figure out what was going on. He said, what's up with the ladies in the back seat? And the little old lady looked at the officer and said, I guess we just got off of Highway 150. (laughs) Figure that out for a minute. Some some of you will catch that about halfway through next period, all right? That's good. Sometimes we misunderstand some of the rules of the road. One of the, the, one of the most misunderstood road rules there are is that of the U-turn, uh, commonly known as the UE. Uh, if you travel much with Mr. M, you'll notice that the U-turn is a legal thing to do with him. Uh, but uh, when to make it, when not to make it. Uh, in the States, it's a little more, uh, a little more common. Uh, sometimes that's the only time you can get into a uh, and entrances by making a U-turn. And in Canada, we have a little, a few different rules, and it can vary by province or state or, or town. I want to spend just a couple minutes this morning talking about U-turns. But I want to talk about U-turns in the spiritual sense. Uh, the Bible gives us many examples of men and women who were heading the wrong direction in life where it required them to gauge their real position of what road they were on and have to alter their direction if they wanted to get things right. I think of, uh, of Jonah. Jonah comes to mind right away when I think of U-turns. Jonah was God's prophet for Nineveh. You'll remember that. And, and Jonah was asked to head this way and, and talk to Nineveh about, uh, about the Lord and, and to win them uh, for the Lord. But Jonah headed down to, to, to Joppa and he headed the direct opposite way that God had for him and you'll know it took God's intervention in order for Jonah to take a U-turn and head back in the proper direction he was supposed to be heading. I think of Abraham. Remember Abraham, the the whole Abrahamic covenant that you've learned about in Mr. Uh, McMahon's class where the, the promised Messiah would eventually come from Abraham. He was God's man at that time. You'll remember he got to the to the land of Canaan, and, and he didn't stay there because he panicked in the midst of, of, of a famine there. And you'll know he went down to Egypt, and there he lied. And it took God's direct intervention for Abraham to end up taking a U-turn and heading back to where God would have him, uh, only by God's good grace. I think, of, uh, I think of Peter. You remember Peter? He was the apostle with the sandal-shaped mouth 
who always seemed to put his foot in his mouth all the time when, when it came to things about what he would say about God uh, and, about the, and about Christ. And, and Peter, you remember, said to Christ, look, I'll never deny you. I'll even die for you if, I, if need be. And then the last picture we see of, of really Peter at, at, at the, the end of the Passion Week here is that it headed on was Peter cursing to, uh, to those that were around the fire saying, I never knew him and, and I, and he dropped some, some language that wasn't appropriate. The next thing we see of Peter, we find he went back fishing. And then after the Lord's resurrection, you'll remember that, that he was real interested in where Peter was and he said to his disciples, go find Peter. And Peter was brought back into a restored place of fellowship. Those were all U-turns. And I think of one this morning that we're going to look to here in, in Luke 15. It's really the ultimate example of a, a really a crash and burn and then a return when it comes to a U-turn. And it's really a beautiful teaching tool that Jesus uses in this parable uh, when he's talking to the proud Pharisees at this time, uh, known as the prodigal son we're going to talk about this morning. But there was proud Pharisees and there was also some interested tax collectors around him who, were, who had been known as sinners. And, and Jesus begins to tell a bit of a, a parable, a, a short story is what we would call it in our day. Uh, Charles, uh, Charles Dickens, the great English author, actually called this story the greatest story ever told. Uh, and it's one of the most recognized parables by even those outside of Christianity and don't even claim to be religious. And as we start to look at verse 11 is where we really pick up, you begin to see our Lord talking and starting to paint the background of a canvas as he's going to start to tell this story a little bit. And as we look at there, we see really a beautiful picture of a home. We see a beautiful home because we see a father at the center of the home with two sons and probably a wife. And and we see if we look in a bit closer and as you look into the page and it starts to pull you in, you start to view it a bit more and you turn your ear into it. And what we soon see as we start to to look at the scene is you see a father and son in a conversation is how I picture it out front of the house. And as we listen in, as we look at the text and study it, we begin to see a scene unfold where there's some steps to what I call steps to starvation. Steps to starvation is really what this text unfolds. Now, I don't know your spiritual condition here this morning, and, and I don't know all of your, you very, very well at all. I know myself, and you know yourself, but we know according to God's Word that there is much rejoicing in heaven when a sinner that's outside of the will of God, comes back into that perfect one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ. So maybe it would be this morning that God would challenge all of our hearts, mine included, to ask ourselves where we're traveling, where we are, and on what direction are we really at at this point in our life. Up to this point, all, all, all three parables in all Luke 15 have been about that very thing. You remember there's the lost sheep. Do you remember that, the parable of the lost sheep where one was left, or he left the 99 and went after the one, and there was much rejoicing when he found the one. And you remember what about the one about the lost coin, which would have been really in the day and age there, about a lost wedding ring that, that was lost, and when it was found, there was much rejoicing. And now we have this morning the parable of the wayward son, and how there's much rejoicing on when he returns home. Notice with me in the time we have before us just three steps that all of us are prone to that can lead us to a place 
of spiritual starvation. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Uh, It says, Then he said, Jesus speaking, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them, uh, to, he invited to them his livelihood. The first step to real spir- spiritual starvation is this. It's called self-will. Self-will. In the context of the day in which Jesus was speaking, and you'll remember that context is always important, this would have been absolutely shocking for those around Jesus to hear. Uh, how many of you, and you don't have to show by raising of hand, but we all have been in a room where someone has absolutely said something that was just out of the blue, that was kind of shocking. It it just, someone said something, and all of a sudden the air just got sucked out of the room, and everyone went, he didn't say that, or she didn't say that. We all know that experience. But that's what's happening in the context here. Jesus is saying something that would have been absolutely shocking to the Pharisees of that day to hear. It would have been really scandalous. This was taboo to talk about, because the honor of a father was culturally expected in that day and age. It it would have demanded just so much high honor towards a father. And really, uh, no one really received an inheritance until a father passed on anyway. It would be the equivalent to you guys heading home on break here in a few days, walking into mom and dad's living room and say, look, I want to talk to you a little bit about the will, what you got for me. And I may be thinking maybe we could take it out ahead of time. You know, that's a little bit shocking. But in the context of what's happening in that day, that's what's being said here. And here's a young man that's so wrapped up in himself, and he's so wrapped up in his plans for life, he's so wrapped up in self-indulgent lifestyle, that he has absolutely no gratitude towards any family heritage, because that's how things got passed down in that day. And certainly he had no respect for a loving father. And in essence, what he's really saying is, look, I'm sick of the chores, I'm sick of your rules. I'm tired of your protection. Get out of my way. I want my freedom. That's what's going on here in this day. It was really the equivalent of saying, look, I wish you'd just kick off and give me any bit of coin that's, that's coming my way. Look what he actually says. You notice what it says? Father, give me the portion of what? Do you see the word there? It says of goods. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit chose to put that word there. He wanted his goods. Uh, In the the, the Greek word for that really means material things. He wanted liquid cash assets. He didn't ask for an inheritance. Did you notice that? He never asked for that. He wanted material goods. What's the difference? Here's the difference. An inheritance really involved responsibility. An inheritance really needed leadership and and it needed care of a household and, and, and it required honor. Really, he's just saying, die already and give me what's due me. He didn't want an inheritance because that would have required some sort of leadership on his behalf. He just wanted the liquid cash assets that he could spend. Now that's shocking to hear. But that's the context Jesus is trying to make and portray. And what in that day would have really warranted a slap in the face? And then what would have happened then in the context of Jesus' day is that there would have been a public beating to shame that son. And there would have been a removal from him from the family will. And lastly, they would have held a funeral service, a real funeral service, not for the son, but it would have been a symbolization that that son was dead to any family relation. But that's not what happened here. Because the father endured agony of rejected love. 
That's harsh when you think about it. You say, well, that really doesn't apply to me today. That, that has nothing to do with me. My family doesn't have any real money anyway, so, so it's not going to get passed on to me. Well, here's the point. Jesus wasn't making a real physical point when he's talking about money. Jesus was making a spiritual point here. And you say, well, I'd never really do that to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, as believers this morning, that type of shameful behavior happens quite a bit. It happens when we start to elevate our time and our pleasures uh, above our time with Him in the Word and prayer. It starts to happen when we refuse to deal with sin that's brought to our attention by the Holy Spirit and we push it aside and we don't bother dealing with it. It starts to happen when we start to pursue selfish lifestyles and, and, and self things over anything that's been asked to us by the Lord or by our teachers or by, by what has been asked of us that we're to follow through with and it never really happens. We start to elevate our wants over the needs of others. And that's self-will. And anytime there's self-will, once you step on that path, it starts to become a slippery slope in a hurry. It reminds me a little bit of Isaiah 14. Uh, and you don't have to turn there because we haven't got the time, but notice really the pattern that follows through there as I read it. It still starts with self-will. You remember that it was, it was God's greatest created being of all the angel, Lucifer, And note what the pattern really starts there. It says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Self-will is always the first step. And it starts real subtle, but it can take you down a hill in a hurry that's hard to recover from. Maybe you're thinking, well, that would never happen to me. It would never happen, especially here at Bible school. Do you remember what Paul told the church in Corinth? Take heed what? Lest ye fall. Spurgeon was a great, was a great preacher. He, he had a little bit to say about, about the, the moving forward and making sure that you don't fall as a Christian. Here's what he said, and I love this quote. I've cut it out. It said, the Christian life is much like climbing a hill of ice. You cannot slide upwards. You have to cut every step with an ice axe. Only with incessant labor in cutting and chipping away can you make any progress, if you, uh, any progress forward. If you want to know how to backslide, simply leave off going forward. Ceasing going forward upwards will always lead you downwards of necessity. You can never stand still. Guys, self-will, when you start asserting it and saying to yourself, you know what? It won't hurt to just suit me a little bit right now. And and we pull, even if it's the slightest inch off center, you'll slide backwards out of necessity. It's just the way human nature is. Look at verse 13. There's a progression really in the text. It gets worse. It says, and not many days after, the young son gathered all together, uh, all that together, and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. You know where self-will will always lead you to? It'll always lead you to a place of separation. Do you see what it says? It says he gathered all together, and where did he journey? He journeyed to a far country. Notice the destination isn't given. I find that interesting. You can really paint that picture any way you want it. You can paint the destination of the sun, but the point was really this. He was a long way off from where he ought to have been. He ought to have been back home with his family. He ought to be in a place in a proper relationship with his dad and, and, and his brother that loved him. 
But get this, separation at any distance is still separation. Do you know you can be here at Bible school, and you can be here in your third year, your fourth year, your freshman year. You can be carrying a a 4.0 grade average. You can be going out on practical. You can be attending your Sunday school. Uh, You can be teaching in a church. You can sit on a board of deacons. You can preach a sermon. You can be singing in prayer meeting. You could have walked forward on an aisle singing all 400 verses of Just As I Am, if it really mattered for that much. But you know what? If you are, are, are off-center just a little bit, you're living in a, a distant country. Because any bit off-centered is still separation from being in the perfect will of God for your life. It's so important to keep short accounts with God. I got a question this morning for you. You've been traveling spiritually a little bit to a country that's a little distant from where you're supposed to be. You're traveling a little bit. You're on a bit of a spiritual vacation this morning. It always starts with with self-will. And that self-will will will always lead to a place of uh, separation. That's how sin works. It it captures our attention. Uh, James, we haven't got time to turn there, but he, he talks about how the when, when our own desires draw us away and, and, and if we follow them soon, sin conceives and gives birth to death. Psalm 1.1, the psalmist hit it right off the bat because he said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's just a slight uh, being with them. And then, and then it talks about not standing in the path uh, with sinners. That's spending more time in place you ought to be. And then finally he says, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That's, that's spending a lot of full-time time out of the will of where you're supposed to be. But that he delights and meditates on the law of the Lord. What that psalmist is simply saying is, nip it in the bud before it gets ahead of you. Ask King David about that. Ask maybe a, a guy like Achan about that. Or a guy like Samson. It reminds me of Lot. Do you remember Lot? Lot, Lot followed the same pattern. He, he had self-will. We haven't got time to turn there, but it says when, when there was some conflict between Abraham and Lot, and, and Abraham gave Lot the choice of, of what he wanted to do, and it tells us Lot lifted up his eyes. Lot expressed self-will. Why? Because he looked out and he saw the well-watered uh, area that he wanted to choose. But he would have known that Sodom and Gomorrah, the wickedness of what was going on in that area, it was in full swing long before Lot ever got there. But, but Lot chose for himself out of self-will because that would have been something that was very beneficial for him and he moved off there. That was expressing self-will. He didn't even ask God where he should have gone. He didn't even ask Uncle Abe where he should have headed off. He just chose for himself what he wanted to see. And what he wanted to do. That was self-will. You go a little bit further into the story. You read the part that he pitched his tent near. That was separation. That's, that, that's, that's really practicing separation. He wasn't quite near Sodom at the time. But we find in the end story of that. He's sitting at the front gate. And, and conversing with the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. There and, and he doesn't seem to have a real issue with all that's going on. That's separation. And in the final picture of Lot, we see him living in a tent with two daughters, which he got pregnant himself. 
after he got drunk and then there was incest. Tell me that's not living starved spiritually. And you turn to verse 13 and we see here that this son wasted all the possessions that he had with prodigal living. Uh, it, just, it just was shameful the more you look at it. It didn't make sense as to what was, was going on. You know what Jesus, uh, what uh, Jeremiah said about uh, the whole uh, of Israel when they got away from the Lord? He said they played the harlot. You say, that's awful vulgar. Well, I didn't say it. God did. That's what living outside the will of God does. Lastly, it really leads to a point of, of spiritual starvation. When, when you start to express a little bit of self-will and, and you don't really care where you stand in terms of what God has for you, and, and you start getting separated from Him, eventually it will lead you to a place of spiritual starvation. Notice that in verse 15 and 16 it says, And when he went, he joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he, uh, he sent him into the fields to feed swine, and he gladly would have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. This couldn't get any worse for the listeners of Jesus' day. Uh, this story was absolutely gone off the rails. They would, the Pharisees would have been ticked off big time at this time because they would have caught on what he was talking about. Here was a young Jewish boy uh, asking for money, number one, that you just didn't do. Secondly, you've got him insulting his father. Now he's dwelling in a Gentile location. He's enjoying Gentile lifestyle um, and then he's working for a Gentile master. Now to add further insult to the whole story, now he's, he's living with and, and wanting to feed from the slop of pigs. And according to the Old Testament law, it was an absolute abomination for the Jews to have anything to do with pork. This was absolutely unbelievable. Jesus was painting a picture that was vivid, that they would have understood yet was making a real spiritual point that I think the Pharisees started to catch on to. And it says that he would have gladly filled his belly with, with the things that, that the pigs ate. But notice it says, it didn't say he did fill his belly. It said would have gladly filled his belly. He couldn't even eat that. It was the carob pod that was fed to the pig back then, and it's undigestible to the, human, uh, the whole di- the human digestive system. He couldn't have ate it anyway. He was to a point where he couldn't enjoy anything, and it left him in a place of spiritual starvation. I don't know if you've ever been around someone that's starving to death or seen a documentary on, on someone that's starving to death or, or talked about uh, or talk to anyone in the medical, medical field about, uh, about starving to death. They say it happens really in three stages. The early stage of starvation, they say, includes weakness. They say it includes confusion, irritability, and immune deficiency. Will you carry that over into the spiritual realm and you ask yourself, what are the early signs of spiritual starvation? Well, their moral weakness their lack of commitment to follow through with things. Uh, it's just a confused state of, of really where you stand. You don't start to see sin for what it is. The middle stages of starvation physically are, are the fact that the, the body starts to, to feed on its own muscle tissue after all the fat has, has been gone. You take that over into a spiritual sense and you see the Christian 
when they start to get to a, 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 a further stage of, of spiritual uh, hunger and spiritual starvation is where we start to turn on one another. We don't care about one another. We talk about one another. We run one another down. That's a, that's a middle stage of spiritual starvation. And they say in the final stages of, of starvation, it includes hallucinations, convulsions, muscle spasms, irregular heartbeat, and a sleepy comatose state, and then death comes upon you. Carry that over into the spiritual sense. And you barely recognize the symptoms anymore because you're in a comatose state, not understanding really where you're, you, you, you sit spiritually. I don't know where you stand this morning, but the question really has to be asked is, how hungry am I? Do I recognize that, that I'm, I'm a little bit off right of center and that, that I've got a little bit of craving for, for the things of the world and I'm starting to lose my, my center of attention of why I'm here at school? I'm starting to lose the, the fact of that the Holy Spirit prompts me to change things in my life and I just don't really have the strength to do it nor do I really have a desire to because there's some other things I'm more interested in than, than focusing on why I'm here. And if that describes you this morning, then maybe there's some inventory that needs to be done as you head back over. And as we talk about this week, the, the Passion Week, heading up to Friday where we recognize the death of Christ See, we look at the beginning of this parable, and we haven't got time to go any further, but you recognize the fact that this whole parable Jesus is telling, this isn't about the Son at all. This isn't about the Son at all, this parable. The whole parable is about a father who, in the next part of it, is willing to run to his son in the midst of a, of a, a whole city and a, a whole area that would see a father running towards his son where, where instead he should have shamed him. And he greets him there and he kisses him and loves him and he brings him back into a place of restored fellowship. That's what the whole parable is about. But maybe you need to recognize this morning, or I need to recognize this morning, the place of where I stand right now, if it isn't in the best and the perfect will of where God would have me, then you're in a far off country, and it may require a spiritual U-turn. I, I've told this at teen retreats, and, and I'll share it with you now. Uh, you guys know that I was in a hospital, and you guys know that I had some troubles there in terms of what happened to me at Christmas break. Uh, what basically happened was I had an overdose of opiates in my system. After the, after the surgery, uh, they were giving me things into my back in, in, in through an epidural for pain, and they were also giving it to me in the arm. But what happened is my body started to be overwhelmed by the amount of opiates that started to collect in my system. And the amount of opiates eventually overwhelmed my body where it shut down my respiratory system and brought me to a spot where they couldn't detect a pulse. And, and it brought me to the point of where they needed to breathe fresh air into my lungs and they needed to start CPR to, to see if they could get a stronger pulse in order that I survive. Here's the spiritual picture I want to paint for you this morning. Was the drug doing the wrong thing? No. The drug was the right thing for me. The drug was there to kill pain. The drug was there to take care of pain in my body. 
But it wasn't the best thing for my body. The best thing for my body at that time was to continue to breathe, just like the best thing it is for your body is to continue to breathe. But at that time, a good thing, the painkiller, became too good of a thing, and it took over what the best thing for my body was, and that breathing. Did you get the spiritual picture? You can be doing a lot of good things here in your studies. You can be learning a lot of things. But if the good thing isn't the best thing, then it's the wrong thing. And it will lead you to a point, eventually, where you're going to have to have either some fresh air breathed back into your lungs, or you're going to get to a point where you, you, you die spiritually, not that you lose your salvation, but you get to a point where you just... You're, you're in a dormant state and you don't recognize right from wrong. Let's close and have a word of prayer this morning before we head into our next class. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the passage that's before us. Uh, Lord, we look at the truth that, uh, that Jesus was trying to, com- to convey and it was shock and awe. And he was trying to convey that. God, I pray that we wouldn't lose the sense of the context of that whole story and realize that, that some of the scriptures re- uh, really involve shock and awe for us today. And we don't want to water them down in any way. We would ask that each of us would have our hearts searched. And that the Holy Spirit would be free to put his finger on things in our lives that maybe don't line up as we near the end of this year. Oh God, we know the whole story is about a a God in you that loves us and wants to see us restored to fellowship. So I'd ask that each of us would examine not another heart that's around us, but our own heart. And ask the question, Lord, where it would be that you would have us correct. And we would give you the glory as we look forward to renewed relationship and a new start. And to finish well as a student body of 2013. Uh, Bless each here. Uh, We look forward to the classes that are before us. Help us to learn your word and take full advantage of being here in this wonderful place at MBBI. We thank you for this time and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, gang. You're dismissed.